when your text starts off, this is an evil generation, you know it's going to be a tough sermon to listen to. Not necessarily that hard to preach, but just to listen to. And so this morning, the first things we find Christ saying is this is an evil generation. He's going to describe why, in his view, his generation would be considered so evil. And he distinguishes it between some other people groups that we would rank pretty high on the list of those that were evil. And yet God says that this generation, the one in which he was traversing, the one in which he was ministering, was more evil than they. We want to look at why, and then we want to take that information and bring it into our circumstances and see are we of that character. Is our generation, is this time of equal character to that? Is, are we, have we improved? Have we um, digressed? What's going on around us? And then what part are we doing in that regard and towards that uh, condition? Simply a statement, this is an evil generation, does not mean that every individual in that generation is inherently evil, for certainly that was not the case in this situation. Um, but rather he is looking at the general attitude as well as specifically the leadership of a generation, of a society. And we are going to look at that this morning as well. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity to look in your word this morning. We pray that you might guide and direct our thoughts and attentions, and we pray that you might help us to focus those attentions, those thoughts upon your word of truth for us this morning. We pray that we might truly be hearers of your word. But not hearers only, but also doers of your word. And we pray that you might guide in that today by your spirit. For it is certain that that the words of men cannot produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, we pray that you might have that liberty to move and work in our midst. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have seen... Christ addressing some of the issues that really surrounded, remember, the casting out of the mute demon, or the demon that caused muteness in this man. This takes us way back into chapter 11, verse 14, and 15 and 16. We have seen him address several of the issues, but there was one statement said that um, he has not yet addressed, and that is verse 16, where it says, Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. This group of individuals in the audience has not been addressed yet by Christ. He has addressed the idea of by what power or authority is he casting out demons. He has given us some instruction on, on demonology and, and, and what we should understand of, of what transpires there. He has had an interruption that he has dealt with, and that interruption is about, um, you know, who's more blessed, your mom? And he says, no, that's not where the blessing is. The blessing is on who will hear him. And obey him. We then come to the third area that he wants to address. And this area is um, this idea of wanting to see a sign. We want a sign from heaven. We want further evidence that you are indeed who you say you are. Uh, now remember, these are individuals who have just witnessed, just witnessed the casting out of this demon. Who have also, over the course of the last 
close to three years, have witnessed uh, incredible evidence of Christ's um, Messiahship, uh, who are hearing his teaching on a daily basis. And yet they come to him, and what is their request? We want a sign from heaven. Uh, we want this on our terms, and we want this before us. And it was really uh, a desire, it says in verse 16, to test him. And so Christ is going to address this issue amongst the crowd as well. And his is an accusation itself. Fundamentally, their desire to see specific evidence that they want, when they want it, is a test of his genuineness. And so he comes and he speaks about that. That when you test the genuineness of God's working, that this is reflective of what's going on in your heart and life as evil. You're making an assumption that all that he has said and all that he has done is not of God. And in fact, that was the accusation. He does this by the power of Satan rather than the power of God. They question the underlying authority. Once you question the underlying authority, then it's very simple to take the next thing. Well, if we question that authority, you have to produce evidence based upon our recognized authorities. And so we require this sign from heaven, and we want it today. Or we're not going to believe you. And Christ's response to that is, you're an evil generation. To have been given so much evidence, indisputable evidence, of who Christ is and what he has done, to then say, we don't recognize any of that evidence we have to decide our own criteria of evidence that you're going to have to meet. And Christ's response is, this is fundamental evil. And it's demonstrating an attitude of your heart that simply will not ever be satisfied no matter what is done. And so what is his response? You want a sign. <laughs> As though the signs that you've seen are not enough. But he says no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And we're going to investigate that. We, we are familiar with what that is to a degree. But before we get to that, I want you to recognize that this request for a sign is different than we have seen so far. I say, what do you mean different? Well, let's go to another request for information that was given, and that we've already studied in Luke, where we find the, John the Baptist sending his disciples to Jesus. And the statement is, are you the one, or do we look for another? And Christ's response to them was, tell them what you've seen. Tell John what you've seen. The blind receive their sight. The dead are raised. Tell them what you've seen. The demons cast out. Tell him what you have seen, and that is enough. Already, in that early stages of Jesus' ministry career, there was substantial enough evidence to prove his message. Already, back then. Now, we are some time later, and we still have these individuals saying, well, we're just not convinced. And, you know, I heard you did this over there, and I heard you did this over in that village, and I heard you did this over in that village, but... I haven't actually seen it. Now, yeah, we did just see you cast out that demon, but, you know, maybe that guy was faking all these years. Oh, how evil. 
you want a sign. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and he is. He's on his way. We are entering, getting very close to the Passion Week. We're probably only three days out. We're only about three days out of the Passion Week here. So when you think of Luke, you think of Luke going from his birth always to his death, and you think it's going to cover everything in between. And uh, he does give us more information on the early days of Christ than any of the other Gospels. But he does a tremendous leap forward, and he spends almost the entirety of his book really on about the last month of Christ's life. And so he compresses all of this teaching, all these interactions into that time period. And we find here just really a few days before getting to Jerusalem, he's saying, listen, um, I'm kind of done. And I'm down to one thing. There's one sign still left, and it's to come. And it's the sign of Jonah. And you will be given that sign, that sign of Jonah. And certainly the listeners were well aware of the account of Jonah, uh, of spending three days in the belly of a fish, uh, and then being spit upon the shore and going and preaching to the Ninevites. And so he recounts for them that that's the sign that you're going to receive, the sign of Jonah. Uh, and Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. Listen, you know, if God supernaturally delivers Jonah in this way, he gets spit out of a fish's belly and gets put on the shore and comes and preaches to you the message of God, then you should probably listen. The God that can do all that is a God that's sending you a message, you should listen. Now, I want you to think about what happened to Jonah. Did any of the Ninevites get swallowed by a fish? No. Were any of the Ninevites on the boat during the storm? No. Were any of the Ninevites there when he got spit up on the shore? No. So, what did the Ninevites listen to? They listened to an account, a factual account, of this man's experience. And that provided the testimony that validated the message they were hearing. They knew they were evil, and they responded to that message by repentance. Even though they themselves did not experience what Jonah experienced, nor did they see it happen. They weren't on the boat. They weren't in that sea. They were, didn't watch that storm kick up and then that storm die down as soon as he was thrown overboard. They weren't in the water there in scuba gear watching him get swallowed by a fish. None of that happened. But they heard the testimony of it and combined with the powerful message that Jonah was preaching of imminent, in, yeah, of judgment coming very soon. Imminent. There we go. Imminent judgment. I had to get that word around my tongue. Um, they responded by repentance. And this generation, God delivered. That generation of Ninevites, God delivered. They did not tell Jonah, oh, well, this is a crazy fish story. You know, there's no way this happened. I mean, I don't know what he looked like after three days in the belly of a fish, Oh, I don't know what he smelled like after three days in the belly of a fish. But let me tell you something. If somebody comes to me and looks bad and smells bad, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to listen to what he has to say. Right? But they did. They didn't ask him for more signs. They didn't ask him for more evidence. They didn't say, oh, do you have, uh, I mean, can you perform some miracle to substantiate what you're saying? No, it says they repented. From the king all the way down to their animals, they repented. I don't know how that animals repent, but they did. They muzzled them up and wouldn't let them eat. 
In our day, they would have been arrested for doing that, but that's what they did. Wow. That is a generation to be delivered who responds to the message of the man of God by faith believing it with no further evidence required. And Jesus Christ says, that's all that's left for you. Because all this other evidence you have disregarded. You have blasphemed against it, some of you, calling it done in the power of Beelzebub. And so there's no, nothing left for you except for this final sign. And let me share with you what's going to happen. Those of you who are rejecting all these other signs, guess what? The sign of Jonah won't be enough. We're going to skip verse 31 and go to verse 32. It says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repent at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. And so we find him rehearsing that account. And of course, the, the imagery has to be in their mind. The account has to be in their mind. And he says, listen, you're this generation and those Ninevites, those evil, wicked Ninevites who were delivered, you're going to rise up together. And you know who's going to condemn you? I don't have to condemn you. My works don't have to condemn you. The Ninevites condemn you because they listened to a prophet who wasn't even a good prophet, to tell you the truth. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, among all the prophets, Jonah is not on the top of the list. This is the guy that ran from God, that disobeyed God, that grumbled because God saved people. Can you imagine? I'm going to start doing that now. Every time somebody gets say, oh man, I knew that was going to happen. That's the kind of prophet we're talking about here. So when Jesus says, a greater than Jonah is here, believe me. That's true. What was the generation doing? Oh, okay, you cast out a demon here and you, can, and you heal that person over there. Okay, well, yeah, maybe they were just in a coma and you, instead of being raised from the dead, they discount everything Christ does, everything he teaches. And so what's going to happen? These Ninevites are going to condemn them because they believed the message of really a pretty poor prophet who had this testimony, listen, I tried to disobey God. I got trouble for it. I've been in the belly of a fish for three days, and here I am to tell you that that uh, you can't hide from God's judgment. You can't run away from Him. You either repent, or God's going to destroy this city. Three days you got. They responded with repentance. And so, that entire generation of Ninevites was delivered. He gives another account that he has slipped in here in verse 31. It says, the queen of the south, referring, of course, um, the, the events around Solomon, will rise up in judgment with this generation They'll, and she'll condemn it. She came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon. Now, some people think that she came to test him to see if it was true. Um, and that is possibly one way to hold to that account. Um, the other way to hold to that account is that she came because she had some very honest questions that she thought only he could answer. And that she wanted them brought before him and she wanted to 
converse with him on those. Um, but here she comes. She hears about Solomon's fame, his wisdom, and the way that he is reigning, and the the God-given talent that that has been played, ability that has been placed upon him. And she comes to partake of it, to enjoy it, to to uh, honor it, and and to benefit from it. This is faith. She heard of it and responded by believing not to go see if it was true, but to go benefit from it, to go participate with it, to engage in it and to honor it. And says she will rise up in judgment because someone smarter, wiser than Solomon is in your presence. And so the question comes, if this is the definition of an evil generation who will not acknowledge the work of God, will not acknowledge the testimony of God, and will not respond by faith to the message of God, and this is how God here defines an evil generation, we must look around ourselves as this what characterizes us. But he's going to give a further instruction. I want to look at that instruction before I answer that question. And that's in this discussion about light and darkness. And here we have the theological principles behind the historical examples that he's given. So we have some theology now that he's going to throw into the historical examples of these men in the past or groups in the past that have responded to my message. And isn't it interesting that both groups are Gentiles? Not Israelites? Ninevites? And the Queen of the South. Not Israelites. Gentiles respond to my message, and that was true really all the way through the Old Testament. When a prophet came to a Gentile, they believed. Remember that uh, guy we always know as the leper, who should be called the former leper? Remember him? He responded. He didn't like what he heard. Can you imagine that? Not liking what you hear from a man of God. He didn't like what he heard, but finally the servant says, well, he's not asking you to do anything hard. Why don't you just do it? And Naaman receives deliverance from his leprosy, serves the one true God, goes back to Syria and serves God there. Phenomenal. Gentiles all over the Old Testament accepting that message by faith. And here Christ says, you're an evil generation because you won't accept it. Well, let's look at this idea of light and dark. Let me read it again just to make sure you have it in your mind. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Now, we don't have time this morning to go through all of this, but I want to focus in on one statement here, and uh, really it's the briefest of all that he says here. It says, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. You might look at that and scratch your head a little bit and says, well, if there's light in me, how can there be, how can it be darkness? How can light be darkness? Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. 
Romans chapter 1. Verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest or shown in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. We're going to stop right there. How does light make darkness? When you do not respond to it by faith believing. When you do exactly what this crowd was full of people doing, and that is you question it, you undermine it, you refuse to listen to it, you say, oh, it's not based upon my criteria, but God's, and I don't validate that criteria, I only validate my own, and I am the measure of truth. And I suppress all real truth to only what makes sense to me. And if it doesn't make sense to me, and it doesn't fit what I say is true, therefore I don't accept it, that light that has been given to you becomes darkness. And I will contend it is the condition of most of our society today. I will go even farther. I will contend it is the condition of most of our churches today. And I'll even get more personal is probably the condition of most of our lives in this room. It's because there's truth that we don't like, we don't affirm it, and therefore we excuse ourselves from obeying it. And we become of the same character as those Christ is speaking of in this passage. We have this truth. But truth alone is not sufficient. You can come to this service every week. And you should. Okay? Every week. Faithfully. I encourage it. You can hear truth. You can come to Sunday school. You can come to the evening service. You can read your Bible every day. And that's something you ought to be doing. Um, you can be engaged in Bible studies. You can be engaged in, in, in Christian conversation. You can be, uh, have all this knowledge and still have darkness. If you're not conforming your heart and mind to that truth. These that Pete, Jesus is identifying are men who do just that all day long. If you don't believe me that's who he's talking about, you need to read further from 37 on where he says, Woe to you Pharisees! Woe to you Pharisees! Woe to you scribes and Pharisees! Woe to you lawyers! Woe to you! You have all this knowledge and you're in darkness. Why are you in darkness? Why are you in darkness? Because you suppress the truth. You have the truth. 
but you ignore it. It collects dust. You own the truth, but you choose to be ignorant of it. The truth is sounding around you, but you refuse to hear it. Truly hear it. As we spoke of last week. This is when light becomes darkness. If it is not permitted to penetrate all of who we are, it condemns us. This is a little frightening for us, I hope. If we understand what I'm saying and what God's Word is saying, what Jesus is saying, it becomes a frightening proposition. That we who have so much access to divine truth, if we do not conform our lives to it, are in a different level of darkness than those who have never heard it. Did you hear how God responds to those who suppress the truth, who are unthankful for the truth, who refuse to obey the truth, who know it, but don't acknowledge it in their life? He says He gives up on you and turns you over to sin. That's frightening. The people Jesus is describing here The ones that he is calling an evil generation are those who were students of God's word, had memorized it, made claim publicly to be very proficient in the knowledge of it and to be able to judge who's keeping it. Yet they themselves were guilty of not conforming themselves to it. And this is all wrapped up in this idea of we want a sign based upon our criteria instead of yours. Based upon what I can prove rather than just the testimony of others. In our circles today, it kind of goes along with this line of thinking, you know, God, what have you done for me lately? If you want me to really obey you and believe you and follow you, what have you done for me lately? Oh, how evil a statement that is. How unthankful an attitude that is. To come to God and say, well, you know, I'd love to obey you, but you know, you really haven't been pulling your end of the stick here lately. Shame on us for having such short memories of all that God has done for us. When we were yet sinners, He died for us. That He has delivered us from the penalty of sin. He has delivered us from the power of sin. He will yet one day soon deliver us from the presence of sin. Oh, that we would recognize all that He has already done and realize I have an extraordinary debt to pay. How dare I ever come to Him and say, what have you done for me lately? I don't feel like I'm being blessed enough. You are saved from eternal fire. Is that not enough? No. Why? Because we're unthankful and evil. We owe Him an eternal debt and we ignore our indebtedness and we come to God with this 
ridiculous attitude that somehow if he doesn't show us evidence of his presence and blessing on a daily basis, sometimes hourly, that sometimes, somehow I'm excused from obeying him. I'm excused from showing him thankfulness. I'm excused from worshiping him. I'm excused from hearing his word. Shame on us. And yet that is the attitude that pervades a lot of Christians that I encounter. And if things don't go quite my way for a week or two, I start saying, God, you know what's going on. This must be your fault. Instead of being thankful. Oh, that we might be willing to be thankful for suffering for his name's sake like the disciples were in Acts. Like Paul describes. I can, I can be wealthy, I can be poor, I can be well, I can be sick, and I'll be content. Whatever state I am. Oh, we would have that kind of a heart. And it is that kind of a heart that shows that the light has penetrated all of us. And that's what he's referring to when your whole body is filled with the light. What does that mean? It means not only that I have a knowledge of the truth, because that isn't enough. Having just a knowledge of the truth is not enough. It is not enough for heaven. It is not enough to please God. It is not enough to gain His blessing. It is not enough for deliverance. Having a knowledge of the truth is not enough. Demons have a knowledge of the truth. Do they not? Oh, they know God. They were in His presence. They don't know of Him. They know Him. But that knowledge is not enough. Knowledge of the truth is not sufficient And if we have knowledge and only knowledge of the truth, you have light in you, but you are in darkness. And that darkness is great and frightening. And so what does it call us to? That we let that light penetrate our whole being. That I'm going to submit myself to that truth. Not that I have that truth. Ooh, boy, I'm smart. I can answer all these theological questions. I can have all these verses memorized. I know all these pat answers to the catechisms. I, I know all of this and that. Not enough. Not enough. Not enough. Does the truth penetrate your whole person? you say, I don't want to be counted among the evil generation, then you better let the truth of God penetrate all of who and what you are. Which means that the truth of God dictates how I go to work in the morning, Monday morning. And with what attitude? And with what work ethic? And with what kind of speech on my lips? With what kind of, with what kind of uh, interest in my heart? With what kind of thoughts in my mind that the truth of God is going to penetrate there tomorrow morning? That the truth of God is going to penetrate how I go to school tomorrow? The truth is going to penetrate how well I do my schoolwork tomorrow? The truth of God is going to penetrate how I'm going to spend my free time the rest of this afternoon? The truth of God is going to penetrate my relationships and how I engage in them and to what purpose, to what end. The truth of God is going to penetrate every part of my being. When the light penetrates the whole of who you are, guess what? He says, 
There's no part dark. The whole body will be full of light. Bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Now, instead of light having darkness, the light brings you light. It brings you into this full light of, of a shining nature. It is not hidden. We often think of hiding a, the lamp. We have this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No. And we think that means that I'm going to go be a secret Christian, but that's not what this verse is about. This verse is about, are you going to believe the truth that's in you, that God has put there through the hearing of his word, through the seeing of his creation? Are you going to respond to that truth believing, or are you going to just suppress it? It's not from the world that you're hiding it, it's from yourself you're hiding it. Look at it. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or in a basket, on a lampstand. Those who come in may see the light. And so the first purpose of that light is to set it out so it can penetrate the space. Well, he's talking about in your heart, in your life, in your mind, you have this light, a little bit of knowledge of God's Word, a little bit of knowledge of His truth. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? I'm going to set it over here and tuck it into the secret corner in a closet. And then I'm going to live my life in darkness, in sin, in evil. And I'm going to be condemned by a bunch of Ninevites. I'm going to be condemned by a queen of the south. I'm going to be condemned by a lot of people who heard a lot less truth and responded by faith, believing it and repenting. Doesn't matter how bright, how much truth I have, does it? If I've got stuck in a closet with the door closed, hidden under a bushel, under a basket so you can't see it. doesn't matter how much truth has penetrated my memory cells, my brain, if I've got it all suppressed in a closet that I am living my life apart from. This little light of mine is the light in you from your Creator and from your Revelator, Jesus Christ. He has given you this truth. You can hide it in a closet. You can cover it up. You can suppress it. But what will be the end result? Darkness. Nothing but darkness and sin and misery will be in your life. Pointlessness. But what do we do when we have a lamp lit? We bring it out and we set it in a high place in the middle so that it can give light to the whole room. And this is what He wants you to do with truth. It's take this knowledge of who Jesus is, bring it into our very center of our being, and let it penetrate all that we are. And then, you can't help but shine to the world. Can't help it. Because it's going to go through every crack and every part of your life, through every window, through every door, through everything. It's just going to be seen everywhere by those living in absolute darkness. So we are called upon to accept the truth and the work that God has done, to be thankful for it, to receive it by faith and put it in the center of our lives and let it, that truth penetrate all of who we are all the time. These are not unconnected passages. These are intimately connected. We have the historical evidence, and now we have this, this uh, theological principle behind it um, in this 
uh, account of the light and the darkness in your heart and your life. And, we, and we're going to have it further applied to those that are specifically ruling it out. And that's in the next few, uh, next many verses in the direct uh, pointing the finger, if you will, at who exactly is he talking about who's suppressing the truth. But lest you think that it's the unbelievers that are the great enemy here, I want to remind you, who are the suppressors of truth? The one who has the most and refuse to live by it. And by that measure, they are filling churches this hour. Who are getting more and more and more truth, but refusing to acknowledge its authority to tell them how to live. They push it into a corner, they cover it up, and they continue to live in the same sin that they had before the hour began. Because they don't recognize its authority in their life. They don't bring it out and submit it and put it in the center of who they are. And let me share with you, that kind of existence, Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to you. You are in deep trouble. You are in deep trouble. He has said it in other ways, in other places in Luke, and we have studied it in First John. Woe to you. Why? Because you're only deceiving yourself. You think this great knowledge you have in your brain equals being a Christian, and you are wrong. And you are on your way to hell and don't know it. Because you think you've got all this information up here that's going to save you. The information does not save you. Until it comes out of your closet, out from underneath that cover, and comes into the center of your life by faith that you trust it. Recognizing as the authority to tell you how to live your life. If you don't walk in the light, as he is in the light, you have no fellowship with the Father. You are not in a relationship with him. I don't care how much you know. These men had huge portions of God's word memorized. It was their job, their avocation, if you will. Woe to you. They'll be judged. They'll be condemned. Not only could God's word condemn them, not only could Jesus himself condemn them, not only could the righteousness of Christ condemn them, but it's the Ninevites who are going to condemn them. It's the Queen of the South who came a great distance. She's going to condemn you. I have a little aside here I want to slip in because I have time. That's unusual for me, really. I love that statement. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the truth. And uh, I didn't really understand what that meant very well until I visited Peru. And I found the ends of the earth. Right, Bill? We found the ends of the earth. (laughs) At least the top end of the earth. (laughs) And these people climbing down out of the mountains to hear the truth. And we complain if we have to drive 20 minutes in a climate-controlled vehicle to hear the truth. Oh, that's too much for me. When they're hiking hours to hear the truth. The Queen of the South came from the farthest reaches of the earth because she heard there's truth being taught there. 
Oh, that we would have that kind of commitment. See, that's a faith commitment that says there's nothing more important in my life than the truth of God. Not travel time, not entertainment time, nothing. There's nothing more valuable to me in my life than the truth. And when I have opportunity to access it more and more, I want to lay hold of that opportunity every, oppor- every chance I get because it's center in my life. This, I would contend, is an evil generation, for we share the characteristics of that generation. We question the authority of God's truth. Fundamentally, we say, it can't tell me how to live. I get to decide that, because I'm an American and we have liberty. We question the validity of the testimony of the truth. Until God does that for me, I'm not going to follow Him. Until I see with my own eyes, until, and He hasn't done anything for me lately. So why should I serve Him? Because we will not inconvenience ourselves for the truth. But fundamentally, it's because we won't respond to the truth by repenting and obeying it, letting it come into the center of our lives and penetrate all of who we are, but rather we hide it. We stick it in secret closets and in under baskets and we don't live by that truth. This makes us an evil generation. And when I say us, I don't mean the Democrats, and I don't mean the sinners out there, I don't mean the people in prison, oh, by the way, and I don't mean Republicans either. Um, Got to say all. Um, I'm talking about people in churches. Those who have been given much, Much is required. And it's the people in our churches that have access to the truth more than anyone else, and yet it is they who refuse to respond to that truth, just like Israel in the Old Testament had the greatest access to the truth, by far, and yet had the most stiff-necked, rebellious response to that truth, suppressed it, denied it, said, shut up or we'll kill you, to the prophets of God. So if you want to look for, is this an evil generation, you don't go out and look in the world. It's always been evil. Look at your church. Look at you. Is the truth of God's Word center in your life? And is lighting up your whole body, all that you do, all that you're about, all that you say, all of how you portray yourself, Or is it stuck in a little closet? Oh, you got a knowledge of it, but you're not going to live by it because it can't tell you how to live. I'm going to do it my way. You are in deep darkness. A darkness that will condemn you to eternal flame. 
I don't care how much you think you're a Christian. If that's the condition of your life today, you are not in a relationship with God. You are in a condition of woe to you. You are in trouble. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for the privilege this morning of having it before us. And Lord, it is uh, as hard words to say to us today. Your expectations are greater than we ever acknowledge. We always want to lower the bar because then we feel like we can go over it. And you keep pulling it up, showing us that none of us can attain to it. And so by faith we must come to you humbled, seeking your grace and mercy. Lord, the fact is is that hiding our light in a closet of our life is far too common within our churches and within this church. And Lord, our prayer is that you might, by your Spirit, move us, that we might respond to this message this morning, to your message. By recognizing its authority. Not the authority of Kirk Wessling, but the authority of God's Word and God Himself behind it. You have the right to tell us how to live our lives. And that you have promised to deliver those who by faith will respond by repentance and belief. And Lord, I pray for any in this room who have great knowledge of who you are, great knowledge of your word, but have never placed that truth in the center of who they are. They are not defining themselves by that truth, but rather keep it in the closet of Sunday morning. Lord, I pray that you might convict and bring them to salvation today, truly. And that each one of us might open up every chamber of our life to let your light penetrate all of whom what we are. Lord, we want to engage in this struggle. and We are weak. We ask for your help this morning in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.